All right. So on Tuesday, I'm going to go ahead and jump into this because uh, I know our last class session, we didn't really get through as much as I would like. We have Mr. Evans in here talking about uh, what Mr. Evans talks about, leadership and success. Good stuff. But um, that being said, I would like to go ahead and jump into Chapter 2. And if you've got anything you want to add, please, by all means, uh, interject into the conversation. So <clears throat> we left off just kind of getting some ideas kind of started and flowing about Chapter 2 with regard to economics. And I'm going to kind of recap to get to where we were at. So we said that economics is the study of how human make, humans make choices under conditions of scarcity. And so you might have heard that phrase, voting with your dollars. So every time you make a purchase, you're not purchasing other things with that dollar. You have voted, this is my priority with this money at this moment. I prefer to buy the Coke versus the Pepsi, the Dr. Pepper, the 7-Up, and everything else. So, uh, so those choices that we make as an individual add up collectively to be societal choices, you know. Um, and so companies that rise to the top, they're because our society has said, yes, this is the choices we make. And we've chosen to not only invest our dollars, but our time into this company. And so uh, because of that, uh, these companies are thriving. You know? And so um, <clears throat> the things we do give up, though, are those opportunity costs. Mentioned this on Tuesday. And I mentioned, you know, how we make those individual choices and through that collective unconscious, because we're not joined together into some mass hive brain, but t together, all of us working together, voting individually with our dollars add up to this idea of societal choices. So I've already mentioned opportunity costs, move along. Um, and so this is where we left off. Division and specialization of labor, okay? So there's a couple different ways that we can divide labor up if we're within an organization and if we're focused on uh, providing things, goods and services in our economy. So division of labor, the book classifies it as uh, production uh, is divided into different tasks performed by different workers. You probably may have heard me already mention talking about the uh, Mount Off Pickle plant. Has anybody ever been on a tour of Mount Off Pickle? No? Okay. Well, I got the opportunity to go probably about five years ago now, and it's just one of those things that you don't really connect the pieces of the puzzle because you don't see what goes on in the background. But I got to go check it out, and it was really fascinating. They have a field at the warehouse that's probably several acres, and when you go out there, you see these huge tanks right they're like the size that you would see imagine a water tower on the ground probably not as big as a water tower but a massive tank and if you climb up the ladder or go up the steps they have a row walking down the center of the tanks and if you walk down that row you're looking down into these big water vats and inside of them are just tons and tons of cucumbers inside a highly cellulated solution it's a brine and they are just pumping this brine into these cucumbers. And when they come out of the brine, they're white. Do you know why the cucumbers are white when they come out? Because they've got so much salt in them that it has changed the color of the cucumber. But here's some other things that you see. While you're out there looking at it, you just see like all kinds of scum and bugs and stuff on the brine surface. And the reason why the Food and Drug Administration or the Department of Agriculture considers the brining process as an extension of the field 
And so when you're seeing the bugs and other things, that shouldn't, you know, he's the guy who was to give us the tour said, it's no different than this cucumber being in the field and having a stink bug or whatever walk across it. So, but they do brine them for a while. Then they drain those big tanks, bring them into the factory, and then they go through several different lines to become several different things. Um, probably the most fascinating part of that tour was watching, um, does anybody like dill spears? You know what I'm talking about? They're, they're kind of cut up and cutting spears. The, I was walking into this dill spear area, and I didn't know this until that day. Did you know that Mount Off Pickle hand stuffs the jars of pickles? Hand stuffs all these jars of pickles. And the reason why they do it, they, they haven't developed a machine that will stuff the pickles in a way that shows the seed side out. And when they stuff them, they, they arrange them in their hand and they stuff them in the jar so they fan the seed side out for presentation purposes. I guess if you looked at the rind side, you would see bumpy things that look kind of gross in the green liquid. And so they want to show the seed side and for freshness and for presentation. I thought, man, that's pretty crazy. I'm watching all these row of 20, 30, 40 people stuff these jars. And when I say stuff them, they are fast. I mean, every second or two, it's, it's a seat, you know, they're stuffing a jar and they're moving on. Because I think they were counting every five jars, they count as a batch. And every batch, their counter, they have a person walking down the rows counting their batches, and they would move over beads to count the batches. And every once in a while, they take a break and kind of uh, do a total count and keep moving, keep moving along. And at the end of the day, there's so many things happening here with regard to management and business. And uh, one of the things that's happening is motivation theory. You're seeing how people are motivated not only by the intrinsic desire to do well, but they're motivated by money, the extrinsic reward of doing well. Because at the end of the day, they print out a list of who was the fastest jar stuffer and who was the slowest. And so every day your goal is to not be on the bottom of the list, right? And so your goal is to try to be as close to the top as possible because the person at the top gets paid the most and they show the pay rates. So you get paid more per hour to stuff more jars than the least uh, jar stuffer. So you're having a constant intrinsic, internal, and extrinsic, external motivating factor to get those jars stuffed and moved along. Really interesting. So companies divide up their labor based on the type of job that's being done. And if you walk around that factory, you see several different types of jobs being done. You've got people that are actually making the brine. You've got people that are making different types of pickles. You've got um, shipping and receiving. I'm just a number of different things. Then if you go toward the inventory, went to the business office, and you've got people doing accounting, payroll, human resources, things like that. And so divisional labor is very much something that's important uh, to understand how it works within organizations. Um, this example from the text talks about Adam Smith again. Uh, and what did we say Adam Smith uh, was about? What did he talk about on Tuesday? Anybody remember? He made the big takeaway from Adam Smith is this idea of the invisible hand theory, that if people pursue their own selfish interests, that economies will thrive because people are motivated to go get a job not because they get money, but because that money will provide food, clothing, shelter, and other things we won't need in life, right? And so uh, this idea of invisible hand and selfishness, it really is interesting. And I've actually just had like a kind of a interesting takeaway from this recently where if that is true, then the most selfish people in our economy 
uh, do the do the best. Think about that for a second. If if you're like if you're somebody that's uh, not selfish and you're not pursuing your selfish interest, you're probably not going to do as as well as a greedy capitalist who is very greedy, very about keeping profits for themselves. And so, yeah, that's kind of an interesting thought I had recently about that. So, specialization. Specialization is, uh, in a specific part of the process, allows workers to focus on only part of the production process. So if you're one of those pickle jar stuffers, the good thing is you can learn how to do that very well and probably within a few weeks become really good at it and over a few months become exceptional at it. Where it's just like, if you brought in somebody new and said, hey, here's this person doing this, they were probably blown away watching you do it. It's like, there's no way I'm ever gonna get that fast at doing it. But it becomes, you know, mechanical. It becomes, what we're talking about in our other class, this uh, non-program response, or program response, where you're programmed, you're doing it, and it's automatic. Um, and so the benefits of specialization is that you don't have to think about your job as much. You just go there, you do something, you're literally a part of a machine, you're a cog in the machine, and you don't have to think about all these other processes that are happening within an organization. It's kind of the, side, the negative side of the specialization though is that you're caught doing the same thing over and over again every day, which can get really boring really quickly. You know, anytime you get into a job, you're excited, right? Yeah. It's exciting, new thing, you know, we've got some money coming in, but that excitement level gets kind of, well, it's just like buying a new car, right? Buying a new car, six months later, it's just a car. New job, six months later, it's just a job. And so you want to be doing things and investing in jobs that are interesting to you, that will challenge you, because you want work to be challenging. I know that may seem counterintuitive. People think, I want to get a job, I want it to be easy, I want to just get paid to be there. But after a while, that gets really, really boring. You know, I mentioned I worked in the car business. Probably 80% of that job is just standing around waiting for a customer to show up. You know, and that gets really boring. You know, you're just standing there days and days and days. It's like, oh, can't stand it. And so economies of scale is another thought we have in this chapter on economics. As the level of production increase, the average cost of production, producing each unit decreases. They talk about car production, but I'm gonna give you another one. Um, think about Chicken McNuggets, right? Anybody like McDonald's Chicken McNuggets? You do? A couple people, yeah. Ugh, I have such a love-hate of McDonald's, I really do. I, anybody work at McDonald's now? No, nah, but you used to. How recently was it that you worked there? Oh, a while ago. A while ago, yeah. More than five years. Mm -hmm. So, I have, we go to McDonald's pretty often. You know, we got kids, $3 Happy Meal, you know, pretty simple, right? Um, we try to like give them nutrient, nutritious food as well, but I would say at least once a week we're getting a Happy Meal. And so like, uh, that being said, I have experiences at McDonald's that sometimes are just a, like they're just normal, but it seems like pretty often I'm being asked to pull up and wait. Does that happen to you guys? Can you pull up and wait? You know, and not only that, if you order like a specialty drink or something because they're the McCafe, I swear half the time the machine's down or they're cleaning it or something, right? Does this happen to you guys? And so last night we're on the way home and my wife wanted a coffee one of her specialty coffees, the machine was down. I said, okay, that's fine. And so we, we order it, uh, not something else, and then we got to the window, they didn't have that either. And so I'm thinking, you know, I shouldn't be upset. I am a little upset, but I shouldn't be because McDonald's has it's, it's, it's switched their business model and I just hadn't adapted to the switch, you know? 
Their business model used to be fast foods, fast food, right? I don't think they make fast food anymore. Does anybody want to challenge me on that? They, get, they deliver it to your table now. Yeah. You order through a That's a whole different process than it used to be. So, like, yeah, it's not fast food anymore. It's uh, here, I'll take your order. I might get it to you in 10 to 15 minutes. And that's what it is now, you know. When I was a kid, uh, this was in the 80s, they had just, like, a very limited menu. It was maybe 10 to 20 items. And they had them in production all the time. And they just pumped those items out. And if you order a hamburger, there it is right there, pass it to me, boom. And so like, it wasn't having to make a lot of stuff. It was just, they produced it and constantly and they threw away a lot of food, I get that. But I wish they would go back to just a basic menu and get rid of all this extra stuff. The reason I bring it up with regards to economies of scale is because think about Chicken McNuggets and how many millions of those they sell a day. How much do you think it costs them to produce one Chicken McNugget? Less than a penny, right? I mean, I'm thinking like, a hundredth of a cent, maybe, you know. That's how much chicken McNuggets they produce at a time. Or a ketchup packet. How much do you think a ketchup packet costs if you get one in your to-go bag? Really, to cost them. Do you think it costs maybe a penny, maybe less? Because they produce so much, you know. Uh, and they've got to the point where they can buy in bulk and they get bigger and bigger discounts because of that. So economies of scale, if you can get it to a point where any business that you're buying in such large quantities that it reduces your cost greatly to do that, that's when you really are using that economies of scale and it really works very well for you. There is a plateau point where you just can't, you can't grow it anymore to save more money. There's a physical limitation, like transportation costs, you can't get around that kind of thing. You know, I mean, you may can a little bit, but you hit a wall at some point where you just can't save any more money, but the goal is to find where that, that point is. And so let's talk about micro versus, versus macro. What are the two? Anybody have any ideas real quick? Microeconomics versus macro? So micro deals with the small, the local, the regional, the national. Macro deals with uh, country, regions, and global. And so micro says focus on actions of individuals within the economy. Macro looks at the economy as a whole, monetary policy versus physical policy, and the things I said about local versus global. That's, that's a way to look at it. What's happening here, what's happening everywhere. And so you may have heard of a parable about dropping a pebble into a pond and the ripples cover the whole thing, correct? What we do in our economy affects other economies around the world and vice versa. If uh, there's a financial crisis in another large country somewhere around the world, it impacts our economy uh, because we're interconnected. You know, we have investments in them, they have investments in us, uh, and we buy and sell things from each other. And so when trade is disrupted or when uh, the ability to have liquidity or cash is disrupted in, a, in an economy, it puts a strain on other economies. It's, it's that ripple effect. You may or may not remember when this happened. This is well, it's not it's recent history. Within the past 10, 15 years, there was a credit crisis in Greece. Uh, mm -hmm. And remember this? Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me anything about it? I know banks can only allow you to take a certain amount of money out. Right. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. So if you had money in the bank, your money, your money that you've like earned, a day or something. the bank is telling you, hey, we're only going to let you take so much of your own money away at this point. 
I mean, imagine the pain point, you know. Right, people were raiding ATMs, and I mean, it was just, it was, it was terrible. And the same thing could occur here. Not to give you guys any kind of panic. I, I hope we never go through that. But it's not unheard of for things to go bad very quickly. There's this thing in business we talk about called punctuated equilibrium theory. Things go through relatively long, stable periods, and then they go through radical, dramatic shifts and changes that happen very quickly. And part of that is because some of the stuff is unforeseen. You can't predict when things are going to happen. But our economy could take a hard south quick, and it creates credit crisis, it creates liquidity crisis, and it, it, there's unintended consequences all over the place. If credit card company says, oh, the economy's going down, we're going to pull back credit on all these users, well, some of those users were business owners using that credit to you know, pay vendors, and then vendors don't get their money. They can't pay their employees. Their employees use that money to pay rent. Now rent's not getting paid. Groceries are not getting bought. Gas is not being put in the car. And then you have just an unintended ripple effect all throughout our economy. And so it's not just our economy, too. It hits all over the world. There's a crisis that we had in 2008. Anybody familiar with this, the housing crisis? Was anybody impacted by that directly or you know somebody that was? Good. Gotcha. Right. Wow. Couldn't sell your house for four years because of the depreciation you took, right? So we're going to study this a little bit in this class. I usually show a brief 10, 15 minute video um, about the credit crisis in 2008. This is an interesting thing for business students to study because this was the most significant financial disaster event of our lifetime. This is only probably second to the Great Depression. That's how serious, I mean, it really was that serious. And I've studied it quite a bit. I've read books on it. I've watched a lot of film on it, documentaries. And we were at the edge, staring into, off the cliff of going to a total financial collapse. It was really, what's that? Is this the one where people were like committing suicide and stuff? Because they lost everything? It was like, bad. Yeah, yeah, it was bad. Um, there was uh, basically, they, we lost $5 trillion worth of wealth in the United States. And it wasn't rich people, it was middle-class America. We lost, uh, millions of homes were foreclosed on and lost. I mean, it's, uh, there was millions of jobs lost. We were losing a million jobs a month at one point. Every month, jobs gone. And if you're, you know, if you're a family person, you've got kids, you lose your job, yeah, you, mean you lose your house. I mean, you may not have extended family that can help you out. I mean, there's, it creates a lot of problems, and, and I can understand how it can look pretty, pretty grim for a minute, you know? And so what we do in our economy, the choices we make as individuals affect not only our economy, but it affects the whole world. What if we, what if we all of a sudden said, and I mentioned this on Tuesday, like I, I, we, we may give up soda, right? What if we said that as a society? What if we said we're just not going to buy products from China anymore, right? We're done. We're just we're, we're cutting it off. It's illegal to buy products in China. Think about what that would, the unintended consequences. That's all our stuff, right? That's, I mean, it's not all our stuff, but it's a huge chunk of our stuff, and it would create all kinds of unintended consequences. Even if I sat down for six months and tried to map out all the unintended consequences, still wouldn't get them all. There'll be so many people impacted by that decision because, you know, if price of this goes up over here, it causes the price of that to go up over there, and it hurts all these people in, in between. I mean, it would just be, it'd be disastrous. Uh, the idea of free trade, that word free trade or that, those, those words free trade are important for a reason because it allows the consumer and the best product 
to be in control. It allows consumers to vote with their dollars and they vote for the products and services that are the best that they, they perceive as being the best value uh, or the, the best quality, whatever, you know, whichever one of those wins out the, uh, the argument. And so, go. Monetary policy? I'm sorry, did I? I skipped that? I'm sorry. Okay. Monetary policy versus fiscal policy. Okay. And so, um, monetary policy deals with uh, what we do at the Federal Reserve in order to manipulate uh, interest rates and things like that. Fiscal policy deals with how we actually um, use money year to year. You know, like what are we doing? Uh, and as far as printing money and things like that, fiscal means financial. Think about it in those terms. But um, monetary policy deals with interest rates and things like that. So right now, we're in a situation where the president wants us to cut interest rates. And the reason why the, he wants us to cut interest rates because when interest goes down, uh, borrowing typically goes up because it's cheap capital. It, it attracts people to, hey, interest rates are down, and now's the time to buy a house. You've heard that, right? Mm -hmm. Or interest rates are down, buy a car. And so there's, there's a relationship between dropping interest rates and people stepping up and, and borrowing cheap money. However, I, this is just my personal opinion, but I think it's backed up by a lot of things I've seen and read that I think we're right at the edge of another recession. Mm -hmm. So it might happen in this class, it might happen next year, but uh, when you've got the stock market, and I've been tracking the stock market for over 20 years, stock market's at all-time highs. When you've got uh, corporate profits just through the roof, when you've got debt at all-time highs, uh, not, not only personal or individual and national debt, you're just asking for all kinds of problems. I mean, and so you can't... It's like a life cycle, right? Well, Recessions are healthy. Yeah. So when you say, you say recession, it's not supposed to be super scary unless it impacts you personally, but recessions are a way for the economy to take a breath and pull back and reassess, okay, where do we really, where do we place our value? And then they start slowly uh, heading back in that direction. And recessions actually are like, you've seen where they will burn forest to get out all the, all the weeds and stuff and they'll let the big trees thrive. That's what recessions do. They burn out all the bad competitors in our economy, and then the ones left standing are the strongest companies, and, the, and the, the people that provide the most value, they're the ones left standing through a recession, and then they come back stronger. And so a recession is very much basically a trimming. We trim out the weak competitors, and we trim out people who don't add value, and then after the recession, or th you know, throughout the recession, we start hiring again, and we pick back up the strongest competitors or strongest value adders, and those strong companies do survive and continue to thrive. So, but people of wealth, rich people, look at recessions as opportunities. They don't look at recessions in panic. They say, "Oh, guess what? Everything's on sale. So now's time a good time to buy." Things go down thirty percent. Well, that means I can buy it at a thirty percent discount when it goes back up. So, you know, 60%, I made an additional 30 on top of that 30 that went back up. And so, you know, that's the way that people of wealth look at recessions, opportunities to buy. Warren Buffett, anybody know who Warren Buffett is? One of the most savvy investors of all time. He's, he's well regarded as one of the most keen minds on investing. Um, he says, there's a quote that be fearful when people are greedy and be greedy when people are fearful. Does anybody know what that means? 
So when people are greedy, they're buying up a bunch of stock and equities and investments. That's when the market's going up. That's when people are being greedy. And he said, be fearful. All this money, it can't go on forever. People run out of money to invest. Uh, so be, be aware, be, be, be wary of that. But so when people are being fearful and selling because they're scared they can't access their money, that's when you need to be greedy and step in and say, oh, market's down 10%. I'm going to buy that dip. So, all right. Any questions on any of that so far? All right. So market economies and command economies, a um, couple different types here. Markets have to deal with uh, different areas, different products, different services. Command economies can be driven or uh, placed under more centralized control. We prefer a market economy, which allows for people to provide products and services to the free market, right? We want things that are not centralized. We want it to be decentralized. What I mean by that is you don't want economies to be directed uh, because there's unintended consequences when you bring centralized decision makers into it. Like they can't account for all the, the needs and wants within an economy. I'll give you an example. Let's say that you say that, okay, a group of a white guy, a white woman, and uh, an Asian guy say, we're going to put together, now we're the team on economics for the United States, and we're going to have a command economy, and we're going to decide what type of businesses should be offered. Well, do you really think a white, two white people and an Asian person can really know all of the needs of our economy? No. I mean, we just don't. I mean, different stakeholders, I mean, we're not thinking about kids. We're not thinking about African Americans or Native Americans or all the other stakeholders that are within our economy. So you have to allow for a market economy that says, oh, there's unmet needs in this area. I think Mr. Mr. Evans was talking about this, the first black millionaire, right? Remember him talking about this on Tuesday? He saw unmet needs in his local area and said, hey, we need this. We need this opportunity here. But some people may not identify that opportunity. If you allow for a market economy where people can see unmet needs, whether it be product or service, you can step in and say, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to meet this need. And because I'm going to do it, I'm going to be rewarded. Um, there's a story I like to tell about the gold rush. I may have told it before. If you've heard it, I apologize. But um, in the gold rush, a lot of people didn't make money going to dig gold. But the people that did make money were the people that responded to the market. They said, all these people going to dig gold need somewhere to eat. They need somewhere to sleep. They need shovels and picks. They need blankets. They need all the supplies. So I'm going to set up a general store and a saloon and a bed and breakfast. And so while they're out there digging, they can come and relax and have somewhere to sleep. And I'm going to get rich waiting for these opportunities to try to get rich, right? And so that's what you have to be looking for as an entrepreneur is a way to meet an unbet, unbet, unmet need. The text describes market economy as decisions about what products are available and what prices are determined by supply and demand. Um, and so like, basically we'll talk, we'll get more into supply and demand in a moment, but competitive marketplace Large numbers of buyers and sellers, and no one can control the market price. And in free market, the government does not intervene in any way. Do you think a 100% free market is a good idea? 100% free, no intervention from the government? Why not, Lewis? <laughs> the government's got to get cut. Well, what the, the text is saying here is that there are such things as regulations, and regulations 
are designed to try to protect consumers. So like, we don't want you selling products or services that could be dangerous. And so um, a total free market with no government intervention would actually be harmful to consumers because you wouldn't know that somebody, well, you still might not know, but there are incentives to provide products and services that don't cause harm, you know? And so with intervention from the government, we're hopefully relying on the fact that the government says this product is safe and this product is uh, not gonna cause you some type of harm. And so we, we want a free market economy um, and we want to be able to allow supply and demand to work naturally. We don't want to artificially do things that affect supply and demand. Some companies do manipulate supply and demand a little bit. Anybody like Nikes? You like Nikes? I like Nikes. So when Nike comes out with new shoes, sometimes you'll have people lined up outside of Foot Locker, and they'll actually pay people to stand in line to get an extra pair or two. Have you seen this? Anybody? And the, why do you think they do that? They sell them. They sell them, right. So back in the day, somebody figured out, hey, these Nikes are hot, and there's only so many they're going to make. So if I, if I want to buy this pair that's you know, $200, I can wait in line and I can get two pair. I can pay my buddy to wait in line for me and I'll pay him 20 bucks. I'll get two pair, I'll sell one pair for 400 and I'll, sell, and I'll keep the other pair and I basically got my shoes for free. There's a great documentary on Netflix called Sneakerheads that talks about this kind of thing. And they, they're people that are shoe collectors but they talk about how the market works in the shoe industry and Nike and other companies like it specifically don't release but a limited supply of their product at a time. And they, and they could, you know, they, they could charge way less for their shoes if they did that. Let's say, you know, there's a ton of shoes out here, we're only gonna charge 20, 30 bucks a pair, but they specifically limit or constrict the supply because it makes demand go up and it makes people willing to pay 80, 90, 100, $200 for a pair of shoes because they know people will pay it because of the limited you know, supply of that. And if you want to have the hottest new sneakers, you gotta pay that premium for it. And not only do the primary customers pay that premium, but secondary customers on the market will pay twice that, just so they don't have to stand in line. If they're people of means, they've got money, they're paying that four, five, six hundred dollars. Some people pay thousands of dollars for a pair of shoes, thousands. Crazy. Yeah, crazy. And there's big time industries around the secondary market and shoe trade and, and selling. So um, there's, I mean, there's, well, they take tours of other countries. There's a place in uh, China and Japan they go into, and they've just got like walls and walls of back, back order, uh, new stock shoes, and they're like shrink wrapped. And depending on what it is in the demand, I mean, it's just like the stock market. I mean, some of these shoes are thousands of dollars, so pretty crazy. All right, so these plans are command economy. Economic effort is devoted to goals passed down from the ruler or ruling class. I command you to have this type of economy, right? So it's centralized. This idea of we pick the winners and losers. Remember my example with uh, two white people and the Asian person? That's not a good strategy, especially, I mean, it's never a good strategy, but especially with such a diverse economy as the United States, we've got people from all over the world, all have different ideas, all have different needs and wants. I mean, generally we won't need the same things, but different types of products and services these people want, you know? Um, because like some people, for example, they eat a certain type of rice and that's, they can only get it from a specific type of grocer that's gonna order it. 
Well, if I only say we're only going to have Walmart stores, right? That's not that they're not may not, may not order that particular brand of rice that that consumer wants. So you allow for a free economy or free market where people can set up specialty grocery stores, go in there and you have that specialty type of rice that you want that you may not have been able to get anywhere else but that one specific store. And so I always like, I love walking in specialty grocery stores because you see stuff that you just don't see at a big box retail store. Is anybody going to a specialty store regularly? Which one are you going to? Um, I keep green okay. And what type of um, cuisine is it? A Whole Foods, okay, yeah. But you see, it's almost like being in Bizarro World because you see brands you've never seen and it's just like a whole different grocery store experience. And so because of our free market, we're allowed to have that, you know. But if you had a command economy where you're picking winners and losers, you would say, no, we're not going to have this specialty stuff. Everybody could just eat Uncle Ben's, you know, and that's just not a good thing for the economy to thrive. So resources and businesses are owned by the government. And the government decides methods of production and how much workers will be paid. And so this is so foreign to the way we do things in the United States. The consumers, we pick the winners and losers. If you throw up a business, if it's good, if people respond to it, you're probably going to have a winner. But if it's not good quality product or service, and if the people don't vote with their dollars for your product or service, it's probably not going to work. And so the good thing about the United States is that you can, have a fa you can fail. And you can fail often, you can fail many times. It only takes one thing, it only takes one win. You can have 40 businesses before you get to the one that really works. And because of the things you learn from those 40 failures, you get to the one that works. I mean, you could be a very successful individual. I got a book, went to the library on Tuesday, had a book on reserve that I had ordered and I got there. And I, anytime I walk in the library, I go to the new book section just to see what's out and see what's going on, you know, new books. And there's this book called 100 Side Gigs by Chris Gilbo. And I know Chris Gilbo because I've uh, read a couple of his other books. And I started flipping through these side gigs just to see, get ideas of what people are doing. And this one guy, he said he learned how to make candles on YouTube and he wanted to make a very mild, natural candle. And so very, really, really basic looking candle, two wicks, it's got natural oils and, and spices. He sells these candles for $32 each, and he makes about $40,000 a year on the side, selling them on Amazon. I'm like, man, that's tremendous. And there's a bunch of other examples. Um, this one guy started a podcast, and he helps musicians, you know, gives advice to musicians about how to like do their own uh, music and digital and stuff like that. And he's quit his job. He makes about 50000 a year doing his own podcast out of his house. So there's all kinds of... Uh, opportunities in a free economy and we want to encourage that we want people to take risks we want entrepreneurship all right so let's talk about supply and demand supply and demand is an interesting thing because uh, many things in our life are supply and demand based and there's this thing called equilibrium let's see if I can get this right and so so, yes. yeah, this is it. So, very briefly, or very simply, as supply of something increases, demand of something decreases, okay? Like, if I give you seven french fries for lunch, you're gonna be like, man, supply's kinda limited on these fries, I sure could demand some more of those, right? So, but 
uh, if I give you a million French fries, you're like, man, I got fries all over the place. I'm going to pick up some fries and throw them to you, give you some fries, fries for everybody. So, you know, like, but after a while, you know, they're going to say, I don't want any more fries. There's a million fries. I don't care about fries. You know, demand goes down. And so there's a central point that manufacturers, that retailers are looking to find, which is that equilibrium point. If you list a product too high, nobody's going to want it, right? It's too much. Can't, can't afford to buy it. Nobody's interested. If you list it too low, you're going to sell out instantly. You know, people, there's a demand for it. Too low of a price. Oh, I can't believe it's this low. Buy the whole stock. So you're trying to find that sweet spot price where it's high enough to make good returns, but it's low enough to draw interest to the consumer to, to pick up your product or service, whatever it may be. And trying to find that equilibrium can be tr tricky, especially if it's a new product or a new category. So you have to experiment a little bit. You might have to do some focus groups. You might have to list it at a high price and work your way down to find that sweet spot. Anybody ever done a, what is it, the uh, funding sites like GoFundMe? Has anybody ever participated in one where you donated money? Um, I've hung out on GoFundMe. I've never done one myself. Uh, and I've never, I've, I've, I've given money once, I believe, but I've never, I don't think the project was funded so I didn't have to give up the money. But in any case, that's a good place to test ideas. There was a game designer, he designed board games, and he worked an office job. He said, I have this idea, I want to design a board game. They designed the first game, it was so successful, they made so much money off that first year, quit his office job and started designing the second game. I met, I, don't, I haven't met him, but I met him online, these three brothers, they, uh, they said, we want to develop really cool luggage and backpacks. And so they, they started a company called Wonders, and the bags are about $200 to $300 a piece, but they, they produced a bag, they put it out, they made so much money off the first bag, it was like a quarter million dollars they brought in in revenue. That's not after expenses, but they made so much money off that, they did a second bag, and off of that second one, it was like three quarters of a million dollars they brought in in revenue. And so that's all they do now, is produce one to two products a year on GoFundMe, really nice setup, and they pre-sell bags and other things, other accessories to the market, and the market will fund that project They'll use people's money to go produce it and then ship it to them. And then they keep whatever's left, the profit, and divide it up amongst the three brothers so, and whoever else helps them. So supply and demand, you know, there's, it's an interesting dynamic and it's, it's a constant give and take. Um, and it shifts over time. You know, like our de the, the demand for certain products goes up and down. It's always interesting when I worked at Walmart seeing the hot toys of Christmas Anybody remember a hot toy of Christmas or something that's, that's usually hot around Christmas time? When I, was, when I was there, Tickle Me Elmo was a hot item at Christmas. I mean hot. Like, if you had a Tickle Me Elmo, you had something special. And so, one time we had a batch come in, we put them up on the store shelves, and I bought one at the end of my shift just to put it up. And uh, I ended up selling it on eBay for like four times what I paid for it. I think I paid 30, I sold it for like one, one and a quarter, something like that. Yeah, people, um, I had an HR manager at Walmart. She was a regional or district HR manager. She bought one of the very first Xboxes, the very first Xbox 360 that came out, and she sold it on eBay for like $2,500. Yeah, couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, that blows your mind. But that's supply and demand. That's uh, the sneaker example plays too. So supply is the amount of good or service that a business is willing to produce at a given time. Quantity supply, the specific quantity 
that will be supplied at a single point on the supply curve. So supply, once again, is the amount of goods or services that a business is producing at a given time and the quantity supplied, specific quantity that will be supplied at a single point on that supply curve. Uh, diamonds, first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about quantity supplied. Uh, so diamond industry, if they actually released into the market all the diamonds they've got hoarded up in their saves, it would drop the price of diamonds dramatically. And they know that. So they artificially keep the price of diamonds high by hoarding diamond supplies. And so they release just enough to keep that, that, that price you know, where they want it to be and as they need to. But the diamond market is one of those markets that they very much manipulate that supply. Questions about any of that so far? So demand is the amount that consumers are willing, to, willing and able to purchase of a good or service at a given price. Quantity demanded is a specific quantity that will be supplied at a single point on the demand curve. And so you've probably been to a store before and you've seen something on sale and thought, man, that's a good deal. You know, something that's like, I don't know, whatever you might buy. It was $20, now they marked it down to five bucks. You're like, wow, 75% off, I gotta get it, right? So you get something, week later you come back and there's still a lot of them. You know, like, I can't believe these didn't sell, but you look closer, now they marked down to $2 a piece. And there's still a lot, and you're thinking, I can't believe what a great deal this is. 80, what is that, 80% off? You know, or what is that, 90% off? Yeah, 20 bucks, so yeah, 90% off. And so you're thinking, man, I gotta jump on this. So you buy a few more, and then they drop it to 50 cent a piece. You cannot believe the great deal that's right in front of your face. It would be so insane for you to pass it up. But you really don't need it, but the, the, the value proposition is so strong that you just buy everything that's left. Right there is a demonstration of the demand curve. As it price decreased, your demand for that item went up because you thought the value was so much more increased. You're thinking, man, I could give these away for Christmas, whatever it may be. And so that's how the demand curve works when price reduction kicks in. And every store does it. You know, they mark stuff down from time to time to try to spur that demand curve. All right, a couple of things before we get out of here. Measures used to evaluate the health of the economy. There's a lot of things. Let me be clear on this. The stock market is not necessarily a good indicator of the health of the economy. Once again, stock market is not necessarily a good indicator of the health of an economy. Many people are not involved with the stock market they don't even have one dollar in the stock market. Many people. And so if the stock market's going up, 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 there's a lot of people that are just thinking, so what? That doesn't affect me. I don't have a lot of money in the stock market or I don't have any money. And so you don't see the stock market up here as an indicator. Um, some of the indicators are gross domestic product, what we produce. And so we took a hit on this when we got to globalization. Companies started offshore in labor and offshore in production because they could do it cheaper somewhere else so, you know, we still produce things in the United States. We still have a ton of small businesses and large businesses that produce things. But for the most part, we've, we've sent a ton of business to other countries. The unemployment rates, yeah, that's a pretty strong indicator with the caveats. There's a lot of people that are working, but they're working in situations where income's not that high or they might be working multiple jobs, two low-income jobs instead of one high-income job, right? And so if you're working you know, for $10 an hour at your full-time job and you've got another job working at minimum wage, you know, unemployment rate's gonna look great, but you're still struggling to make ends meet. And then the consumer pricing index, 
This is, a, this is an indicator of how price shifts or how dramatically they shift over time. That kind of gives us an idea of the market health. And that brings us to the end of our lecture on Chapter 2. If you guys have any questions, let me know. Don't forget about the homework. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Keep in mind that the campus is closed on Monday. And so don't be that person that shows up on Monday and say, where's everybody at? All right, guys, have a good weekend. Be safe.